Let's turn to Second Samuel chapter six. Second Samuel chapter six. Starting in verse one. Again, David gathered together all the choice men of Israel, thirty thousand. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord with all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, string instruments, on tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. And they came to the house of Nachon, the threshing floor. Uzzah put out his hand of the ark, and God took and of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Now David was afraid of the Lord that day, so he said, How can the ark of God of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him to the city of David. But David took it aside and uh, put it in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought uh, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when uh, those bearing the ark uh, uh, of the Lord had gone six paces that they sacrificed oxen and and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of God, ark of the Lord, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Lord, as we look at your word, we just pray, Lord, that you would be showing us... uh, 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 lessons from David and uh, what uh, what occurred here and, uh, at, uh, uh, at the at, uh, the ark as they were bringing it. Lord, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would use this in our lives to show us how we can serve you, how we can uh, do your work, and Lord, to your glory in every way. We pray, Lord, for each one of us that you just give us uh, ears to hear and, and most of all, hearts to understand and obey what you have to say to each one of us. We pray in Christ's name. It was an exciting time for the house of Israel. There was dancing and music. In fact, there was all sorts of music, lyres, harps, tambourines, uh, castanets, and cymbals. The mood was uh, really very noisy and very festive. In front of the crowd stands King David. He's heading the procession, and there's quite a procession. Thousands of people are in the procession. It started at the house of Abinadab and will travel all the way to Jerusalem. It's a very impressive gathering. But as we look at the procession, we see that the focal point isn't David and the musicians. 
Not at all. The focal point is a box. A box on a cart. A box being carried by the procession. The box, of course, is the Ark of God. God's holy Ark. It contains the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and manna, and Aaron's buttered rod are all in, uh, rod are all in there. But most of all, it's a place of God's very presence on earth. It's an object of God's holiness. As we look, we see men and women of Israel celebrating because of the ark. And for good reason. For several months earlier, the ark was captured by the Philistine. They had taken the ark in battle, and they had kept it for seven months. Finally, though, the Philistines returned the ark to Israel. And after that, the ark was put in the house of Abinadab, and there it stayed for 20 years. So this is a special day. Finally, the ark of God is to go to Jerusalem. There, David plans to build a temple, a house for God, and the ark will find his final resting place. As the procession starts, there's a tremendous joy and celebration. Thanks, Give thanks to God, for he is good, shouts David. His loving kindness is everlasting, responds the crowd. The procession snakes down the house, leaving the house of Abinadab, and continues toward the flourishing forward Nachon. Not too fast to the cart, shouts the priest. It's carrying the ark of God. As the oxen approach the threshing floor, there's a sharp turn in the road. Suddenly someone shouts, Watch out for the ark, it's starting to slip. Quickly, Uzzah grabs out, reaches out, he grabs the ark and he grabs it just in time to keep it from following. But just as quickly, God strikes him dead and Uzzah falls to the ground. There's chaos among the crowd. David stands there shocked. How could I let this happen? How can the ark of God come to me? The procession ends. So does the celebration. Reluctantly, David orders the ark taken to a nearby house, and there it remains for three months. What went wrong? What was the problem with this procession? It started out as a procession to glorify God. There was music and rejoicing. The ark of God was going to Jerusalem. Why did God put a damper on all this? Why did God display his anger? Why did he strike a man dead for trying to rescue the ark? These are questions that are important to us. The answers will tell us how we should serve and glorify God. How we should do God's work in God's way. Today, what we're going to talk about is for believers, uh, for those who uh, know and uh, love the Lord Jesus Christ. For a non-believer, the only work that a person can do is to believe the gospel. So if you're here today and you don't have salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity, then God says you need forgiveness of sins. And there are many here in this room who would like to sit down and talk with you. But if you're a believer in Christ, then you'll want to be a faithful bondservant of him. You'll want to avoid David's mistake. You'll want to serve the Lord in a way that he wants you to. So what we're going to talk about today is doing God's work God's way. 
And what we'll do is we'll look at six things that uh, will help us in his servants, things that will help us do his work in his way. So let's get started. First thing, God is holy. God is holy. Let's look at verse 2. And David arose and went uh, with all the people who were before him to Bailey Judah to bring up there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. God is a holy God. He is called by the name. Even his name is holy. He's enthroned on high. Numbers 4.15 talks about God's holiness. And here, in the context here is uh, God is giving commands uh, to Israel on how to prepare the tabernacle whenever it's moved. It uh, takes a journey. Numbers 4.15 And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the coverings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Korah will come to carry them but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. Every object used in God's worship is holy. If anyone touches them, they're going to die, because he's a holy God. So what happened here in Second Samuel 6? Uzzah touched the ark of God, and instantly he died. The warning to touch the ark was given here in Numbers 4. They die. This is something to remember in our service to God. God is holy. In today's Christian culture, it's easy to be casual with God. Sometimes we think the Lord Jesus is our special buddy. We treat him as our peer, sometimes as our co-pilot, I've heard expressed. Now, it's true that Jesus calls us friends and brothers. But God is also the God of the terrible mountain. He's enthroned far above his creation. We need to approach him with reverence and awe. Proverbs warn us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. No. Ananias and Sapphira experienced God's holiness. Acts chapter 5. Let's read that. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds his wife being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it to the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back the price of the land for yourself? Well, as it remained, was it not your own? And after it had been sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have lied to men, not to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, and breathed his last. Ananias were part of God's church, and yet they were instantly struck dead when they dared to lie to the Holy Spirit. As a warning to the first century church and to us, God is a holy God. We can even be too casual with the Lord's uh, holiness when we share the gospel. I've heard it sometimes, and sometimes we say to children, to get saved, 
Just ask Jesus into your heart. That's not the gospel. It never says in Scripture that you should ask Jesus into your heart. God's holiness requires more than that. It requires a sinner must acknowledge his sin and repent. A gospel that ignores sin, ignores a God that is holy, ignores a God that cannot accept sin in his very presence. As we grow in the Lord and serve him, we'll grow more aware of his sinfulness and his holiness. And as we do God's work, we need to remember God is a holy God. Second, God's word is the basis of our service. God's word is the basis of our service. Why did things go so wrong for David as he was moving the ark? Let's look at a few verses and I think we'll see why. Exodus 25, 14 and 15. You shall, and this is instructions that are uh, given uh, uh, to the priests and to Israel in the care of uh, uh, the ark and the holy things. Exodus 25, 14 and 15. You shall put the poles on the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So, whenever you see a picture of the ark in the wilderness, the poles are in it. They stay there permanently and the, uh, the ark is to be carried by the poles, not to touch the ark. Numbers 3, 29. The families of the children of Korath are, uh, were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle and the leader of the father's house of the families of the Korathites was uh, uh, Elizaphan, the son of Uziel. Their duty included the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary with which they ministered and all the work related to them. So, the work of carrying the ark was uh, given to the family, the children of Korah, no one else. They were the ones to carry the ark. Numbers 4.15, uh, we just looked at that one. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the coverings of the sanctuary, where the camp is set to go, then the sons of Korah shall come and carry them. They shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. Finally, Numbers 7, uh, 7 through 9. The two carts and four oxen uh, he gave to the sons of uh, Gershon. This is he, Moses, gave to them, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen were given to the sons of Mariah according to their service under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Korah, he gave none, because theirs was the service of holy things, which are carried on their shoulders. The responsibility to carry the ark was to Korah's family, no one else. They were not to touch the ark, or they would die. And they were to carry it on poles. Korah's family was not given arcs. The ark was to be carried on a cart and not to be carried on a cart. These were requirements in God's word. And David knew these commandments of God. In short, David disobeyed God's word. He had the ark carried on a cart, not on poles, as God commanded. David's service was unacceptable to God because he disobeyed God's work while trying to do God's work. 
And this is important for us. I think every believer wants to serve God, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. God's way and the world's way. And as we serve God, we must do it according to God's word, the Bible. There's a danger for us today. Too often we won't take God's word literally. We'll say that a command belongs to a different culture and not to us. So we'll spiritualize a command and not take it literally. But God's word is living. God knew us, our needs, and our uh, culture when he wrote the word. Its instruction for us is for today. Not a jot or tittle will ever pass away. It's eternally important for us down to detail. Do you realize that half the people that ever lived in the world are alive today? If something happens in God's word that doesn't apply to us, then something in God's word wouldn't apply to half of mankind. But God's word is living and active. It's not cultural to a specific time. All of God's word applies to us today. Here with David, uh, he had the command to carry the ark on poles. Now the command was given over 400 years um, before uh, David lived. It was given back in the time of Moses. So did David think the command to carry the ark on poles was a cultural thing for the time of Moses? That it didn't apply to him? I don't think so. Yet he disobeyed God and had the ark carried on a cart. I had a friend uh, several years ago. His name was Pat. And uh, that's a believer and a very strong believer. He liked to witness and he would look for opportunities to share the gospel. And uh, we were in Lawrence at the uh, University of Kansas at the time. And Pat met a, a person from Saudi Arabia, an unbeliever. And he wanted to be, befriend him and uh, get to know him. And he spent some time with, with his friend from Saudi Arabia. Now, his friend from Saudi Arabia wanted to get a new car. It's an American dream, I guess. He wanted a car, and his specification is it had to be red. So he wanted to buy a car, and he wanted a red car. So he checked at the dealership and see what he uh, would do, what it would take. He said uh, they can sell it, but uh, he would have to get somebody to co-sign a loan for him. Pat figured, hey, this would be a good, good opening to the gospel. I could co-sign a note, and... Uh, uh, that would uh, develop a friendship, and he would trust me. What Pat didn't realize, I don't think he realized, that many times in Proverbs, uh, for example, in Proverbs 22, verse 26, it says, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debt. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed away from under you? So Proverbs says, actually several times in Proverbs, it says, don't be surety for a debt. Don't co-sign a loan. But Pat figured, hey, I want to witness to him. This is a good and golden opportunity. So he co-signed the loan. A few weeks later, uh, after his uh, Saudi friend got his car, he wrecked it. He totaled it. And after that, he moved back to Saudi Arabia. Pat was left with a debt. And Pat uh, worked several months very hard 
to pay off what he owed for that debt. Pat's intention was good, but he ignored God's command. Don't become surety for someone else's debt. Last fall, we had a fall festival, and we had it right at Halloween time. Now, a decision came up. Do we make this a Halloween event, themed event or not? Now, there are many different opinions among believers about uh, whether or not to celebrate Halloween and how to do it. Should Christians do it? What we did, we considered Ephesians 5.11. And 5.11 says, have no fellowship with the works of darkness. And we wanted this time to focus on God and not on darkness. And some would say that there are parts of Halloween that focus on darkness. So we decided to call it a fall festival, and we based it that on the Word of God. No jack-o'-lanterns, no costumes, but just a fall festival. As uh, those of you that were here know, the Lord greatly blessed that time. God's Word is living today, and every word is the basis of our worship. Third, it's not obedience if it's not full obedience. It's not obedience if it's not full obedience. David didn't say, ignore the ark. He didn't say to God, forget it. I'm not going to do anything. He was doing something that he thought God wanted. He went to get the ark, and he was bringing it back to Jerusalem, and he was doing it with a large procession. The only problem is, he was not obedient in one detail. He was not having the ark carried on poles. Because of this failure on one point, God reigned on David's parade. He brought judgment and he brought death. David's disobedience in one detail made his effort unacceptable to God. David's obedience was not full obedience. Now, does this mean if we were doing God's work and we mess up on one point, God's going to zap us? I don't think so. I don't think we need to worry about that. God knows our weaknesses. The problem is, and it comes up, when we really don't want to obey. But we know we better not disobey. So what do we do? We kind of obey. Kind of obey. We partially obey God. Now, those of you that have had children know what I mean. Son, put your toys in the toy box and get ready for bed. Your son puts his toys in the toy box, but he takes one toy up to his room. He hopes that one that he's done enough to satisfy you. But in fact, what he did is he disobeyed you. His obedience was not complete. What makes us partially disobey or partially obey? Why is it that sometimes we don't fully obey? I think the answer is because we want to look good. There's something that we want, something we want it, and we want to do it, or we want to have it, yet we want to look spiritual. We want to look like we're obeying, so we partially obey. We hope that we can fool others, perhaps even fool God, but we're not obeying completely. Instead, we're disobeying. Turn to First Samuel 15. First Samuel 15. 
God gave a command to Saul, and it came through Samuel. Look at verse 1, 1 through 3. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him in his way when he came out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God gave a command for Saul and he came through the prophet Samuel, said to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Don't leave anything alive. So what does Saul do? Jump down to verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And Samuel will obey. He partially obeyed, didn't he? Later on, Samuel comes back and he returns to Saul. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said to him, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, a lowing of oxen that I hear? I always think that's one of the classic uh, uh, quotes in Scripture. What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? But it shows that Saul had only partial obeyed. Because of that, God rejected him as king. Religious activities aren't necessarily godly activities. Religious activities aren't necessarily godly activities. There was a certain point, there was certainly a lot of activity as the ark was being moved. The procession was almost like a parade. Lyres, uh, harps, tambourines, and so forth. Then there was the Ark of God, the Ark by His name. The procession of many uh, had many priests. It was led by the King of Israel. This had to be a tremendous religious experience. It was moving and emotional, but it wasn't of God. God wasn't impressed. Just because there's religious activity doesn't mean that God is pleased. We just talked about Saul's encounter with Samuel. Saul made a sacrifice to God, even though he spared some of the Malachites. Was God pleased with Saul's sacrifice? Of course not. God wants obedience and not sacrifice. Saul was involved in religious activity, but he was disobedient to God's word. Remember in Matthew 23, this talks uh, that Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. And here, uh, 23 is where you hear Jesus' harshest words about others. He 
he reserved his harshest words for the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees said long prayers. They wore ecclesiastical robes. They were long in ceremony. Yet the Lord called them whitewashed sepulchers and say that they would receive no reward from God. For any of us, finding religious activity is no problem at all. All you have to do is turn on a Christian radio station. You do, there are endless Christian rallies, bookstores, magazines, newspapers, counselors, psychologists, concerts, rock groups, country music groups, food stores. We see the name of Jesus Christ and the name of God all around us. This all seems very religious. But how do we sort that out? How do we know what is truly of God? The answer, of course, is God's Word. Is what we see consistent with God's Word. Shortly after I got saved, I was, I was a, a young believer, and I was really excited about Christianity and just looked for uh, things that were Christian opportunities. And I was listening to the radio, and I heard a, a radio preacher. And his name was uh, Herbert W. Armstrong. And uh, he had a program called The World Tomorrow. And I listened to that, and I said, this is really great. Uh, he, he's a preacher, and he talks about it, and it makes it relevant. And I told one of my uh, older Christian friends about it. And he says, do you know that uh, uh, Armstrong is not a believer? But what he's preaching sounds good. But he leaves out a lot of things. He teaches, for example, that uh, it takes works uh, to become a Christian. He leaves out a lot about the, uh, the works of Christ and never mentions the Holy Spirit. I was deceived by something that uh, sounded religious and seemed to be, but it wasn't. Much religious activity can be uh, emotional or moving. Don't, man, don't get me wrong that. I like emotions. They can be good. But is what we see consistent with God's Word? Just because it's in a glass cathedral doesn't mean it's of God. Modern tongues movement is a, a good example here. It's uh, very emotional. And those uh, back will say that it uh, claims that it helps your spiritual life. But in truth, little, if any, of what you hear in modern tongues is consistent with God's Word. And Lord willing, we'll talk more about tongues in a future message. Christian music is another area to watch. Much of it can charge us emotionally. It can make us feel warm and fuzzy and appeal to our awe and excitement. But listen to it carefully. How does it present the person or the work of Christ? Does it present the deep truths of God? Does it worship Him in holiness? Is it totally consistent with Scripture? Someone once said, and I think there's truth, that sometimes you hear uh, some modern songs and they'll be 7-Eleven songs. In other words, the same seven words repeated 11 times. Now, there's much modern Christian music which is very good and very spiritual and strong. But be discerning with it. Not all of it is going to be uh, spiritually accurate and spiritually uh, uplifting. Infant baptism is considered a religious activity. That's not found in the Bible. Scripture says baptism is for those who believe and they baptized after they believe. Even the Lord's Supper may not be a godly activities. 
First Corinthians 11 warns about that, not to be done in an unworthy manner. It's to be done in an orderly manner, an honoring to God, not chaotic and not self-centered. Religious activities aren't necessarily godly activities. What works for the world may be unacceptable to us. What works for the world may be unacceptable to us. Where did David get the idea to carry the ark in a cart? Where did he get the idea to carry the ark in a cart? You know who was wrong? Answer? From the Philistines. From the Philistines. The Philistines carried an ark around in a cart. They even returned it to Israel on a cart. David must have thought it worked for them. It should work for us. Of course, how wrong David was in that. God held David and all of Israel to a higher standard than he did the rest of the world. It was okay for the Philistines to use a cart. They didn't know better. But God had commanded Israel to use poles and not a cart. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls you to his standard. He doesn't expect you to look for the world for methods. He expects you to search his word for his direction. A real good example we have of that is uh, George Mueller. George Mueller, he was uh, in the late 1800s in Bristol, England. And he was a person, a very strong brother of faith. In fact, uh, one of his favorite uh, verses is Philippians 4, 6. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's what he did. He would never let anyone know of what his needs were and of what he was doing. And uh, he would never ask for money at all. If there were any needs, he'd let God know. And God only. And he would live completely by faith. The world says, ask for money. But Mueller's way, oops, <laughs> uh, faith does not operate in the realm Uh, of the possible. There is no glory in, in God in which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Now, Mueller uh, formed orphanages in England and uh, his policy in uh, forming the orange, uh, or orphanages and running them was he would not tell men what it needs are. He would only uh, make it known to God. And over the period of his lifetime, he uh, cared for over 10,000 orphans, and it's all totally by faith. In fact, uh, one of the accounts is really interesting, and I'll, I'll just read it. The children were dressed and ready for school, but there was no food for them to eat. The housemother of the orphanage formed George Mueller. George asked her to take 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children as he did. Within minutes, a baker knocked at the door. 
Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread in the morning. So I got up and break three batches of, uh, batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon after that, another knock on the door, and the milkman, his cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk was spoiled by the time it was, the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled at the milkman, brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 children. I think examples like George and others are really uh, strong and encouraging. Reading the Word is important. I think probably next to that, oh, some of the most encouraging things are Christian biographies. And uh, There's a biography on George Mueller written by A.T. Pearson, who is a, a contemporary of George, knew him very well. And I would encourage you to, to read Christian biographies. This is one I think uh, you should read sometime in your life. And others, it'll be a real encouragement. My father uh, was the head of the K, uh, KU Endowment Association at the University of Kansas. That means he was a fundraiser and was very successful. And living around him, I learned a lot of do's and no's about fundraising. And I know quite a bit from his, uh, what I've heard from him about how to run a successful campaign. Now, it's different for the church. We don't ask for money. We don't do fundraising and giving we let the Lord lead the individuals and in how to give. And our way of providing financial needs is not the Lord's is not the world's way, but it's the Lord's way. For the local church, what works for the world may not be God's best. In fact, I was talking to a believer a while back, and he was telling me about his local church, and they're trying to come up with ways to attract more people at their meetings. So what they did is uh, they did what they did would make people feel uncomfortable, feel comfortable, or even attracted to their meetings. They'd soften the gospel. They had a paid poly speaker. They went to contemporary music. They had a drama and street theater. And these are the world's ways to attract people, but they are God's best. God tells every church to pursue holiness, obedience, and worship. He never says pursued numbers, especially the expense of compromise in his word. Church growth is good, and we all want to see it, but if our efforts are modeled under the ways of the world, they may not be pleasing to God. Finally, go back and do it right. Go back and do it right. David made a mistake. He tried to move the ark of God using a cart. It was a disaster. The cart was upset and one of David's men was struck dead. When David saw the fruit of his effort, he abandoned the project. He left the cart of Bailey Judah and he returned to Jerusalem. But three months later, David returned to Bailey Judah. He returned to take the ark to Jerusalem. And this time, he had the priest carry the ark on poles. He did it God's way. The result was a wonderful procession and the ark was carried all the way to Jerusalem. David went back and did it right. Remember Peter, he denied uh, the Lord three times. But it didn't end there, did it? 
He went on to be an apostle of Christ, boldly proclaiming the gospel. The experience of his denial led him to become a strong witness for Christ. Peter learned from his error. And I would say the same thing for me too. I've learned much more from my failures in life than I have from my successes. Do we sometimes do things our way instead of God's way? Do we sometimes use the world's methods instead of God's methods? Of course we do. And when we do, we need to go uh, do what David did. We need to go back where we started doing things wrong. And do it right. Do it according to God's word. This is the lesson that Second Samuel 6 teaches us. God wants us to do his work, his way. If we try to serve with partial obedience, if we get wrapped up in religious activities, we try to serve God using worldly efforts. God can't bless us. But if we look to his holy word, if we full obey it as we serve him, then he'll bountifully bless us both in our personal life and our church. And in closing, just one last example. In ancient Babylon, the world is expected to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. That was the world's way, and that what uh, everyone is expected to do, and they would do, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they refused to bow. They refused to follow what was expected of them from the world. Result? Fire furnace. They faced it. But in the end, God was exalted for them, uh, exalted them for their obedience. They did God's work in God's way. God wants us to do His work in His way. Lord, we pray, Lord, that uh, You would uh, help us and uh, guide us in just being obedient to You. Lord, we as believers, we want to serve You. We want to do what's right. We want Your name exalted, Lord. Show us in your word and show us uh, how you want us to serve and what's right. Lord, the world has so many attractions to us and uh, so many of uh, ways to, to do things. But Lord, we desire to honor you, to obey you fully, and to do your best and to glorify your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.